Did you know that the average human spends 92,000 hours at work during their lifetime? That's more than we spend eating, cleaning, driving, watching TV, or even surfing the internet. In fact, work is what we do most. It comes second only to sleeping. Welcome to 92,000 Hours, the podcast that believes in the integration of life and work. I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb. Before we begin, I wanted to tell you a quick story about why this podcast is so personal to me. I began practicing law at age 26 and learned many valuable lessons, including that I was deeply unhappy at work. Although I was on a path that looked like traditional success, I realized that I needed to quit my job in order to align myself with my passion and purpose. Now I am dedicated to making sure all of our 92,000 hours at work are spent well instead of simply spent. How do we construct a working world that values and accommodates our humanity? How do we construct a life that is not separate from, but fueled by, the purpose we find in our work? In this podcast, we will explore those questions and more. In each episode, I will speak to someone that demonstrates meaning, passion, and purpose in their work. Join me in discovering what happens when we bring our whole selves to our work, schools, and communities. This week, we are speaking with Dr. John Littlewolf. John grew up on the Leech Lake Indian Reservation and is an enrolled member of the Boas Forte Band of Chippewa. He is a law enforcement officer, and during his career, his duties have included patrol officer, domestic violence and sexual assault investigator, and criminal investigator. His education includes a bachelor's degree in criminal justice, a master's in public safety executive leadership, and a PhD in leadership and change. He focused on law enforcement culture and trauma during his doctoral studies. He's always been an advocate for his indigenous community, and among other things, he serves as a board member for the American Indian Family Center in St. Paul. And today, he is talking with us about compassion. I'm so excited. This Your interview has been one that I've been thinking about for probably six months. And so I'm like, I really want to interview John because there's <laughs> so many things. You are the most, uh, uh, like you're the Renaissance man that I know. Oh, thank you. And so there are too many things for me to ask you about because I want to <laughs> ask you about everything. But I think we'll get to many big picture ideas from this conversation. Okay. All right. So let's first start off with my standard big question that I ask every single person. It's the it's the way to not ease into, but to jump feet first, head first, whichever way into for this podcast, which is my big number one question. So if you remove any reference to work, school, sports, volunteerism, research, all those things that you would talk about, this is what I do. Um, I'm really interested in uh, what are you most proud of? What is your greatest accomplishment as a human? I've thought a lot about this question. I've listened to your other podcasts and everyone's so insightful. Um, I think my greatest accomplishment is recognizing this um, indigenous man that I've become. Um, um, it's not something I, I accomplished like a degree or anything like that. Um, it's a way of being and it's something that was always there. 
Um, growing up, it wasn't always like that though. Um, yeah. There were where I was ashamed to be who I am. Um, and that occurred whether it was direct or overt racism, um, just that feeling of uh, being shameful of who you are. I vividly remember those experiences as a kid and having them being related to my indigenous, indigenous identity directly. And as I've grown um, from that child in Northern Minnesota to the man I am today, I've learned to appreciate it for what it is. It's, uh, it's, it's not a racial classification. It's not a, it's not a checkbox on a census form. It's a way of being and a way of seeing the world. And it's something beautiful and uniquely rare. Uh, the tribe that I belong to has 3,000 some odd members. So it's not a lot. Um, and that number's going down. And to be a part of this lineage, um, I see what my parents struggled with and the work that they put in and the things that they had to overcome. And it uh, makes me proud of who I am and that we've hung on to this identity um, since time immemorial. So uh, it makes me proud of who I am. I love that so much. When you were talking about that as the, uh, I, I'm really interested in talking to you about this and in lots of ways, but it brings up for me, um, you talked a little bit about the maybe seeing yourself with shame as a kid. And I wonder, because we're going to be talking about compassion and empathy today, when you, as the, as the man you are now, who embraces this lineage and, and, and sees it as part of maybe the, a purpose and meaningful part of who you are, how can you look back to that child or even look back to your parents and, and, and what is, what does compassion look like to the, the little John who was struggling with that? Wow. Um, if I get emotional anytime, just please, we're getting into some in-depth stuff, but it's sorry, <laughs> but it's so, it's just, I'm, and you can tell me, don't ask me that question no. or I'm not ready for that question, but it's just really, since we were talking about compassion, I'm really interested in what it feels like. It's a. Uh... Looking back, and uh, I've had this, this thought before, you know, what would I tell that young boy, you know, what would I tell him when he feels bad about who he is? Um, I would tell him to pause and I know it's easy to say, but be grateful for what he has. I mean, my, my parents worked incredibly hard to give me a stable home. Um, my dad I left school in the seventh grade to work in the woods. That's just what they did back then. And my mom made it to high school. And so there were things there that I didn't appreciate then. Um, loving acts um, that I see as an adult, like, wow, that was pretty impressive for, for a small town in Northern Minnesota to put, uh, to put that kind of effort and just to work hard to give me that base that so many of my peers didn't have, you know, stable home, um, chemical free home. Um, it was, it was an awesome stepping stone. I would, and here's the parallel in with my profession is that sometimes on calls, I get to see that person and I see that person in the flesh and I've seen it 
when I worked at Leech Lake, when I worked at White Earth, and I see that little boy, and it's 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 a profound parallel, and it's it's something probably why I continue to work with tribal nations exclusively is just I identify with that, and I have been that child, I have been that kid in those tough spots, and um, I also am what I am now, incredibly grateful for for all that work that became <laughs> that that was before in my parents' generation, so. Oh, that's lovely. So if yeah. we were ta- to talk about my experience of you and your presence uh, in, not just in my life, but in the places where I see you showing up um, as I lurk about your social media or every other place that you are, um, it feels to me like you are particularly appropriate to speak about this. And I, um, I was, I looked up the definition of compassion and it said sympathetic consciousness of others distress together with a desire to alleviate it. And for today, for our conversation, I kind of want to talk about that in chunks in terms of compassion for that we see in our workplace or how you may have experienced compassion at work, also compassion um, and and how you bring it or don't, right? Like where that sits for you, compassion at work, as well as um, I'm really interested in compassion in our communities and what that means for us right now. I'm feeling really, you know, I feel like it's something important to talk about right now. And, And then also compassion for in our personal life and for ourselves. And so- that's kind of how I want to t- like chunk that up today if we can. And I have a few questions, but I may miss up, you know, mess up on the questions and you might have something that you really, a story that is particularly relevant that I don't ask you a question about that. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure gets out. So sound good. Sounds great. <laughs> okay. So um, how does, how would you talk about compassion? Like when I said to you, let's talk about compassion. I know that you said compassion and empathy. So I'm interested in how those two things go together for you. And if you'd like to talk about that a little. Absolutely. Um, I see them two things as, as merging over each other in a lot of instances where it's not just a a hard line where one's over here and one's over there. Um, I think of, I think of the calls I've been on and, uh, you know, you can have empathy and compassion uh, both at the same time and empathy being that I'm taking on the feelings of this other person or I'm in a, in a, in a more shallower sense, I'm, I'm seeing it from their perspective and compassion is, you know, having that emotional reaction and, and absolutely. I like that at the end there and a desire to change it. I mean, so many people in my profession. That's why we. That's why we. That's why we join. We're not going to get rich in this profession, and that's why we. That's why we. That's why I joined was to make a difference and leave things better than I found them. Um, and it's these two terms. They reach in so many different ways. It's like a. In my mind, it's a tree, and and the branches just intertwine and weave. And you've got other things over here like dignity and. Can you have dignity without compassion and empathy? And can you have respect for someone without compassion and empathy? And those things are inherent in our, in my profession, in law enforcement, that we need to do this job with empathy and compassion. We need to care about what we're doing because these are 
you know, someone else's day might be numbers or I don't know, shipping something. Ours are these lives, these people in crisis that call us. And, and right now I, I'm well aware that law enforcement is in a flux right now. We are in a huge state of change, which is great. Uh, I think this change has been a long time coming. And I see these things as inherent to the law enforcement culture. And you could parallel this if there's anyone listening to your own, whether it be business or anything like that, uh, empathy and compassion being inherent to the culture. What kind of message are we sending to the public, to our employees? How are we onboarding that new officer in my case? You know, what are we giving them that they're going to give back to the community? I love that so much. Talk to me a little bit about um, as a police officer, how have you experienced compassion for you as a police officer or for other officers whom you work with? This, uh, this goes to the root of my doctoral study, which was police officer trauma. I mean, if we want to, uh, throughout my career, it's been the elephant in the room and, um, if we look at each other as peers in law enforcement, compassion and empathy come in there, uh, we are absolutely 100% human. I mean, there's no superhuman nature that says on the job application check here, if you're superhuman, we're fallible as anybody else. And um, I wanted with my doctoral study to, to throw some red paint on that thing that I've seen. I've seen it in every agency that I've been in. And I'm in my third agency um, and it's, it's been there and officers, whether it's culturally or the way that they're indoctrinated, it's, it's not an easy topic to talk about. Compassion and empathy seem counterintuitive to these notions of masculinity, toxic masculinity, and it's harmful. And a lot of people do it without even knowing that they're doing it. You know, this notion of being impervious, that you're the superhero, that you can take anything. Well, we can't take anything. And I have the science to back that up. So, um, although we as a society kind of assign that to our police officers we, as well. We do. We do. And we expect that. And I think the job demands that we act where others wouldn't act. Um, but there's a flip side to that, too. And there's always a whiplash, as I used to call it. Um, I noticed early on in my career that there was an emotional whiplash to these adrenaline calls. I mean, it was a peak. It was almost like a roller coaster. It was a peak climb. But as soon as I got home or that night, there would be an emotional backlash. And that would be in the form of depression, um, self-doubt, replaying the incident over and over and over. And I know that some of my peers went through the toughest of calls. And I've seen the adverse effects of that, whether that be alcoholism, um, stepping on the wrong side of the law themselves, um, getting into trouble um, and losing their jobs and, and nobody talking about it. That was the thing, um, not a pamphlet on the wall, not a brochure, um, especially in smaller agencies. Um, it was just the way things were. And so that was what my study highlighted. And I think having empathy and compassion for each other is a new dialogue that we need to keep going. And it's gotten louder as the years have gone on and especially thanks to social media, but it's still a big issue in law enforcement. 
Do you have suggestions about how we can, or how law enforcement can provide compassion to those police officers? Absolutely. Did you learn that in your, in your dissertation? In my dissertation, I, I looked at a lot of things and there were broken systems. Um, one of them was relying on these old systems of, of what we thought the fix was. And what we thought the fix, the fix was in 1980 and 1990 is not the same as today, but we are still practicing in those modes. We're still relying on things like debriefing. Uh, debriefing is a concept that had its, had its heyday in the 90s. Now, later studies have shown that debriefing does not work, that debriefing can actually cause harm in this large group settings that we were practicing in. When I interviewed my subjects just about, about two years ago, um, they were still practicing debriefing like it was gospel. And so there was not a, again, I asked the simplest questions. Have you ever seen a pamphlet in your agency? Have you ever talked about this? And a couple were like, we've talked about it, but in a debriefing setting, some outsiders might come in after a critical incident. But mental health, uh, recognizing the signs and symptoms of PTSD were not high on a priority. And one guy, I remember him, he's like, yeah, there might be something on the bulletin board. And he describes his bulletin board as being a typical 100-page, you know, mess of a bulletin board. And it's like, wow. And so, first of all, we need, there's solutions out there. There's solutions out there that have been shown to work in mitigating the symptoms of PTSD. Um, I've had to take them myself. Um, I was having issues and triggered reactions while I was going through my study for my own stuff. And... Um, there was one profound one called EMDR. So I moved in desensitization and reprocessing. And so that helped mitigate some symptoms that I was feeling. I was having some profound symptoms around crowds. And so, which I tie back to law enforcement, but uh, wow. in progress. And, uh, but, you know, going back to your question, yes, there's, we need to identify the problem. We need to speak to it like it's, any other problem. If there was something killing law enforcement officers at the rate it is now, which is number one, whether which statistics you look at, it's it's high up there. It's either number one on some or just behind others. And it's, it's there because we're, again, we are not tracking these. Um, if you look at an organization called Blue Line Help, I mean, they're the ones that are actually tracking these. And it's like, okay, we need data. We need to have conversations. We need to open the the, the, the conversation on this, and it's long overdue, and that was the point of my study, and it's rooted in empathy and compassion for these people that we ask to be superheroes. I, I'm also interested in talking to you a little bit about, and I think maybe I'll even bring this up. I thought about doing it after, but um, well, I've seen you particularly exercising compassion in your activism. I think that you perform your activism in a way that is doing something, not just saying something, but doing something. And I'm interested in, in you telling me a little bit, I can describe for you places where I've seen you do it. Um, and I will. So for example, gathering supplies and delivering them to activists at the Dakota Access Pipeline protest, you didn't just put something on your Facebook page, you did something. Um, or I saw you showing up at the in your homeless community in your city to actually be there with people and know them um, uh, in addition to many other things. But I was interested in you talking to me about how compassion is part of activism for you. Mm. 
guess uh, let me start at the beginning. I guess it goes back to how I was raised. Um, my parents were always demonstrating empathy and compassion in the home. Um, we had an extra room when I was growing up in the house and it was not unusual for a relative to be in there getting back on their feet um, and, you know, having a place to stay. And when I, we grew up hunting and fishing and um, I watched my dad, uh, we were a small family, just me, my mom and dad. I watched my dad give away a large portion of what we took in from the harvest. Uh, we didn't need all that deer, give it to the larger families, our relatives. And so they could be there. And he was always doing these small acts. Um, and it just became a, like, why wouldn't you do that? Why? I guess I didn't, growing up, I didn't know any other way. That was just how we did things on the reservation. Um, or now, um, and that, that sense of compassion and being able to to feel that other, that other's pain, that other's view, whether it be environmental, whether it be social, uh, there's something there and I can identify it with, and I can say, that's wrong. Something needs to change. This is not right. And what can I do about it? Um, it's people fighting for their humanity. It's people standing up for their dignity, their, their inherent value. Um, not to be run over, whether it be by economic interest or um, acts of government or anything else. Um, and so I've always been called to take action there. Take environmental activism, for example. Um, can I empathize with the generations to come? Can I empathize three generations down the road that they're gonna have to deal with oil in the water, pipelines, all this other stuff that we are doing right now? Yes, I can absolutely empathize with that and I can say, what can I do to make this better? Take it to the social realm. Uh, these other uh, causes I've supported when Black Lives Matter says, stop killing us, stop killing us. And can I see that pain? Absolutely, I can recognize that. Even as a law enforcement officer, especially as a law enforcement officer, I can say, yes, this is wrong. What can I do about it? And I will stand with you. I will give my voice, I'll give my presence, um, and I can identify with that and take action. John, can you tell me what that was like? You are in Minnesota, so the George Floyd murder happened near you, um, and you are already active as a voice of, uh, like you do something about the dignity of others, but you're also a police officer. What was that time like for you? And what was it like for your community? Uh, it was it was hard here in Minneapolis. I The day after, it was shortly after, I went down there and I saw the site and where he was murdered. And um, I listened to people and I listened to their pain. And yeah, and it was, you know, it was profound. And, you know, it, to, to see that happen, to see what the nation saw and to think, wow, this didn't need to happen. This man could still be alive today. And we watched life slip from him before our very eyes. And um, that still lit, a, lit something inside of me like so many other people. Um, so many people took to the streets. So many people um, made their voices heard. And for me, it... it 
I don't fall into that mindset of, of, of I am my profession. I am more than that. I am who I am before my profession. And long after this ends and I retire, I'm still going to be that person after. And what does my inner constitution say? What does my inner, my inner values say? They say, no, this is not right. Something isn't right here. This needs to change. And what can I do about it? And so um, this is still a work in progress in Minneapolis. And I live in the Twin Cities. I live in the neighboring city of St. Paul. But I mean, this is still going to take a lot of work. And I'm, I'm sad that it took the life of this man to get to this point. But we can't forget that. We can't forget where this dialogue came from. And for that, push harder for change. I have two thoughts about that um, from what you're saying. One would be, how do you think what you've learned in your research can inform how we respond to this, right? Like that, that idea that they're, the trauma that our police officers might be going through um, all over as a result of this. I, I just wonder how that could show up in a way that could actually help us resolve rather than pit us against each other. I have a couple thoughts on this and, uh, and it goes back to empathy and compassion in the culture. As I said before, we're indoctrinating our new officers. Um, that's where we actually get the, the skills and the, the mindset of the job when they first come on. Most departments have field training programs. We do too. Um, we teach them our norms, our assumptions, and what we value. And this is either by official title, by let's say the, the official leaders of the agency, the chiefs, and it's also by the unofficial leaders, those long-term officers, the, the sergeants, the, the peers on the job. And what are we indoctrinating there? Mr. Floyd was dehumanized. Um, his dignity was taken. Um, there was zero respect. You insert empathy and compassion, I think that could have changed. And dehumanizing, being so cruel and um, saying someone's life is less than worthy. Um, absolutely. I mean, there's a, that's a cultural, something that's culturally instilled. How did, you know, we look back and how could they be so cruel? How could they be so cruel? How did they get there? That wasn't, that wasn't just a flash in the pan. That wasn't a lightning strike. That was a slow storm that built. And so how do we get in there and change this? Um, and this is where it comes. This is where I need people to take a leap of thought here. How well are we taking care of our officers? Because what we put on them is going to come back to us. And if we're not taking care of our officers, they're not going anywhere. Police are not going anywhere. And this is my fear that nothing's going to change. But if we can address some of this stuff and we know that trauma causes these reactions, we know that it caused dissociation. We know that it causes flash anger. We know that it causes rage. We know it causes these things. So can we, we try to take care of our officers because they are in our community and God forbid I have a child someday and nothing changes and he calls the police and he's looked at a, at a certain way and there's a rush to judgment and he gets the worst of it. I mean, that's a fear in my mind as a Native American man that when I have children that nothing will change. But I mean, that falls back to us today. What can we do? 
And so um, the emotional culture of an agency, the ability to have cultural empathy and appreciation for a culture different than your own. I mean, we need to inject that into our departments. We need to get this into our agencies because it's not there. I'm there. It's not there. When you hear people talk about, it makes me think about the, um, the idea of defund the police. Um, what does that mean to you as a police officer? I think, I think that's a, you know, a lot of, a lot of law enforcement officers push back on that defund the police, but this job is drifted into areas we weren't intended. We're not mental health practitioners. We're not social workers in the the true sense of social workers. Um, And so from my perspective, if we can divert resources to other modalities, other programs, absolutely, please do. I mean, a lot of these calls and a lot of these missteps are misunderstandings and lack of training and a lack of awareness about what mental illness is and how it looks and how to react to it. And that's exactly what I see there. I, I don't think it's a, it's not, it's not a cause for alarm. It's not a call for abolishing the police. It's a call for getting funding to other programs, other avenues better suited for this and working in conjunction with them to get the services to the people that need it. So we don't get hurt. So they don't get hurt. That makes a lot of sense to me. I see it as a, as a place where I understand the thought that people may believe that that means we don't want police officers, but I think that it's the contrary. We want police officers to police. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that you said earlier, and uh, as you were talking about your response to George Floyd's murder, you said that you um, went there the next day to, to the site of his death and spoke to people and, and heard and in some ways, I believe like you really experienced empathy. You went there and, and felt the pain of individuals who were feeling pain. And I think that I see that as a central part of your activism as the, I'm going to actually show up. Can you give me examples of um, how we can put that type of activity, that real compassion and empathy into our activism? I think a lot of us, are filtered from the actual pain through screens of various sizes, right? And so I'm interested in what that what it takes to to really act in your activism. Hmm. Let me let me preface by saying that if anybody's doing anything, I mean, unique to them, whatever they can do. I mean, if they if they can just send five dollars, great. Yeah. Stuff, that's awesome. If they if they are not a frontline person awesome, please just support, just do what you can, where you can within your means. If this conversation has caught your attention and you want to join in on conversations like this, check out our website at connectioncollaborative.com. Welcome back. You're listening to 92,000 Hours. 
and today we're speaking with my friend, Dr. John Littlewolf. question that I had for you, which is about, um, I saw something that on Indigenous Peoples Day, you posted a photo of yourself at a Columbus monument. And I was interested in um, whether you encountered additional people and were you able to experience compassion and empathy in your discussions with people? Or did you have any? Like, tell me about that moment. And because I want to bring it back to it's both your it's compassion, there's some hint of activism there, and there's also um, the the importance of your your most proud accomplishment as is really leaning into your lineage as uh, a Native American. And so, tell me about that. Yeah. So this this little story was with my wife, and it was on Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, let me preface by saying I tried to practice compassion and empathy. I, um, so we're down at the, the, the state of Minnesota had a Columbus statute on its grounds. It was put there in the 20s or 30s. All I'm not sure of the date, but it was pulled down uh, last summer. And, and in my opinion, rightly so. I mean, the man's record, any, any, anything in history that you read about this man is just horrible. The horrible crimes that he did. So today we would call him, you know, crimes against humanity. We would try him in some international court, um, but to have him on a pedestal, no, that never sat well with me. Um, and so we went down there and we're having uh, a dinner and uh, this other uh, contrary, contrary group showed up and, and we opened a dialogue and we're like, hey, you know, yeah, we're here because, uh, you know, this man's a monster and a murderer and history tells us so. And they immediately countered with uh, attacking our source of facts and um, debating with us the, the accuracy of our facts and where'd you get your sources? And we we're like, wow, we, we can't dialogue here. And so it became sort of this weird standoff with these people loving this absent statue and mm-hmm. praying before it and idolizing this man and me being a nonviolent um, activist and uh, disruptor, if you will, I put on some Native American music on my phone, some powwow music, if you call it that. I turned it up and I set it at the base of the statue and we sat there for a little bit. And it was such a weird dynamic, uh, watching people pray for this stump of a statue with me playing powwow music over them and it was i had to laugh a little bit and it was just like wow i and we my wife and i actually tried to converse and it was shut down with religious dogma and a questioning of where we got our facts but uh that's how we ended that experience um i I think that's fascinating because one of the questions i had for you john is about is about i really i wrote down that our national discourse is clearly at a very difficult hyper-partisan and, and I think your example is also like uh, there are no more shared facts with Mm -hmm. different people. And so I wonder to those conversations, do you have any advice about how we might 
approach it with compassion and empathy? Like that is a difficult place for us to be. I think if I would have met this guy at the gas station and his group any other day, we would have talked about the weather. We would have talked about sports, but on this topic, um, there was just, there was no dialogue. Um, and I stress again, we earnestly tried, <laughs> we tried. Um, and, uh, Do you believe that he tried as well with you? I think he tried in his own way with mm-hmm. the religious dogma counter and it just wasn't, we were both so far off. And so, um, yeah, I mean, can I take on the view of this man mourning the stump of a statue? Yeah, I mean, I can have compassion for that. I mean, if, but from what I heard, he wasn't coming at from like his heritage was attacked or that he was willing to look at any of the atrocities that this man had committed. He was just there because something that he idolized and something that his dogma told him to honor was attacked. Fascinating. Yeah. Can you tell me, and I don't even know how to, uh, to, I don't, I, this isn't a question that I wrote down, but I I'm interested in it. And I think it has to do with that conversation you said, like you were having is, and really the, the space that you hold, um, as, um, a native American man, what is this? What is it like for you? As you talked about, there are 3000 people in your tribe. Um, but I also feel like you bring such compassion to how you hold yourself in the world. And I just wonder, is there, um, what does that feel like? Hmm. Um, I think, you know, I, I see the world differently, of course, as other people, just because, you know, my experiences were different. And, um, but I also recognize that that lineage that I talked about, that there's something bigger than me. It's not just about John and John's needs. There's selflessness. There's in, in the indigenous community, there's selflessness, there's caring, there's giving, there's beauty. And there's this whole other lens to see the world in. And so as I've gotten older and I recognize colonization for what it is, and I recognize the socioeconomic system for what it is, and I see these things and I lean more into my culture and it feels like home. It feels right and just. And it's like, okay, this is where I belong. And this is how I should see the world. And yeah. What does compassion look like in your personal relationships first? And then the second part of that compassion, that question is, what can compassion look like for yourself? Mm. How can we be compassionate to ourselves? Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that's been a shortcoming of mine that... Uh, that uh, paused for myself. And it wasn't until uh, my wife pointed out some things to me um, that I was suffering that I didn't know. I mean, it was, I knew that there were issues from my experiences on the job, but I can take that moment for somebody else, but can I take it for myself? And um, even recently we were, we were vaccinated at work and I'm like, I, can we give it to somebody? I mean, yeah. And they're like, no, you're a first responder. You need to take this because you're going to spread the virus. Um, and so, um, I think this comes with a lot of people with my mindset that, okay, we need reminders to take moments for ourselves, to take care for ourselves. And so I'm, I'm ever grateful for my wife for 
for reminding me one day at an apple orchard that I needed to seek help for not only myself, but for our relationship, that I was having an adverse reaction to a normal situation. Wow. So I think that that's important. The compassion we both show and experience from others. So Mm -hmm. do you have an example of a moment of compassion that affected you? Where you were shown compassion? Absolutely. There's been, throughout my life, there's been these people that have interjected in my life and where I was going one way and I meet this person and they do something that they don't have to do. They take time or space or an act of kindness that they did not have to do by job title or otherwise. And it sends my life in a different trajectory. There was a professor in college, Dr. Annie Henry, who took that moment for me. And that shot me into a different direction, um, gave me the grades that I needed to eventually get into grad school later on. It was just, it was building of a relationship there and taking time that she didn't have to do, but she did. Um, And these other people in my life that have just come in and shown me love and tolerance. I'm a part of another fellowship that is anonymous, but in that fellowship, we practice love and tolerance. And um, Alex is one of my great change agents in my life. And uh, he showed me this new way of life. And yeah, he didn't have to. And now I have to give that away. I have to give that away if I want to keep it. So it's kind of how that works. It's how you're working at it all the time. Yeah that we practice that compassion all the time. Tell me about, you wrote a book of poetry. Mm. And I'm interested in, I think I just, by the way, love the juxtaposition of what, of, of, of what we talked about earlier. Um, The expectation of uh, almost heroic, toxic masculinity that we give to police officers in our society juxtaposed with, what our society may think of as more feminine uh, and soft as the poetic world, right? And so having, I think that you represent such a good example that, uh, that, that, that protection and um, the, I don't know, it's the, it's the way you approach your life, I think, that is the, the role of um, providing dignity and compassion to to humans, I think might be informed by the way that you um, express yourself through poetry. So I'm just really interested in you talking to me about how does compassion show up in poetry that you write? Interesting. Um, well, uh, the source of the poetry is definitely my mother. Um, really? She was the... Uh, we were not a patriarchal family, we were a matriarchal. And my mother was the alpha in the household and rightly so. Um, And I found out later after she passed, I was going through some of her things and there was some poetry in there. And that for me hit me right in my chest. I'm like, I bet, wow. There it is. That's the source because I always wondered why, where did that come from? And I believe that she passed that on. and I've learned to embrace it. Um, it was always there. And it was a way that I didn't always have the vocal 
tools to express it. I couldn't always find the words, but if you ask me to write it, if you ask me to describe it in word, write it down, type it out. I could do that. Boom, the floodgates were open. I could, I could still do that. That's my best mode of communication. And I think recognizing that in my 20s and embracing it is not something to be ashamed of, but to be shared. And it's like, okay, this is, I'm recognizing that not everybody thinks like this. <laughs> it's the only way I know how to think. Okay, if they're telling me that this is something to share and it's rare, okay, let's, let's share it. So. That's yeah. awesome. It's also an act of courage as well. Um, because I believe that like poetry, when you read it, it's this opening into people's souls in ways that you wouldn't otherwise get. Oh my God. Yeah. It's unedited. It's, it's raw. It's if you want to, you know, want to get away the BS, uh, scrape away the BS. There it is. You, you read the essence of that person. You read who they are. And that's why I love it. It's just, yeah. (laughs) Well, I love it. I think it shows, I think it's just a really, I think the poetry is a really important way for us to exercise our empathy because often poetry, we, it's what you said, like we feel it, we feel it without all of the other stuff around it. People, it's a way to connect deeply with somebody like in a, so quickly mm-hmm. um, in ways that you otherwise, it would take years to get to. Absolutely. And it's universal. So yeah. across all those imaginary things that we set up. Well, you talked about this a little bit before, but um, uh, besides, in addition to maybe this uh, professor that you had, um, do you have any stories about a mentor who could have influenced your life? Um, I love uh, mentorship matters to me a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, but I have lots of different ideas about what mentors might look like in our lives. Do you have any, um, is there anybody that you particularly want to talk about that you haven't mentioned already? No, I mean, there's the number of mentors I've had. Um, it's been a lot and a lot of them probably didn't know that I was watching them. Yeah. Taking things from situations, whether it be ideas, practices, um, just something I reach out and put in my pocket. I'm like, wow, I want to practice that. That's who I want to be. And throughout my law enforcement career, I've had awesome native officers mentor me. Uh, That's lovely. Yeah. From day one, all the way, well, still currently, I mean, it's, it's an ongoing thing and it's, you really understand the depth of compassion and empathy where you learn these things like the power of the power that you're entrusted with. Um, You understand that if I write this person a citation and school says I can do it, the law says I can do it. I don't have to do it. I have discretion. And you realize that this citation may be a bill for that person for that month. And I'm sure, you know, other situations, I'm sure if this person could get their headlight fixed, they would. I'm sure if they could, you know, fix that taillight or weren't, weren't stalled out on the side of the road, broke down, they would do something about it. And you realize that you have a, you have a, an obligation there to think bigger, to think bigger than just that moment, to realize that this is a person, this is a part of your community and it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be bigger than that five minute citation that you're going to write. You're going to impact this person's life. I think that's something that we can apply to all of our work and professional situations though, is just what you said, regardless of the fact that I'm not, a, I'm not in a position to give anyone a citation, but I might be in a position to interact with a colleague 
in a way that embraces their humanity and sees them as a whole person that day. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is not unique to law enforcement. Yeah. And there's going to be instances where people have a, an edge in power or an, op, you know, an opportunity to do something and it can go one way or it can go another. Um, what's going to be best for that person in the end? What's going to be best for the community in the end? And it goes back to what's driving our organizations. You know, is it going to be a sense of empathy and compassion? Is it going to be a bottom line dollar signs? I think that's right. It is the what you value because if you're like even what you talked about, if your law enforcement agency is saying that we do value the number of citations you give out, then it will affect the way that you handle that particular situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how are we interacting with the public that we serve? You know? So it does. The messages that leaders yeah. in unofficial send to the new officers, the ones that are on the front line, absolutely. That message matters. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. See you later. I am so grateful to John for his thoughtfulness and his wisdom. Since our interview, he was appointed to the Minnesota Attorney General's Conviction Review Advisory Board. You can learn more about his work by connecting with him on LinkedIn. And I encourage you to learn more about his book of poetry entitled Send on Goodreads. I purchased it and I can tell you it's beautiful. Next week, we will be speaking with Angles Tejeda. Angles is a trial lawyer, a diversity and inclusion advocate, and a naturalized U.S. citizen. And we will be speaking with him about empathy. As always, thank you for listening to 92,000 Hours. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. We really appreciate your support. If you're interested in integrating the personal and professional through authentic conversation, just like you heard on our episode today, please check out our work at Connection Collaborative. You can find us at connectioncollaborative.com or send me an email at annalisa at connectioncollaborative.com. Thank you and see you next week on 92,000 Hours. 92,000 Hours is made possible by Connection Collaborative. This episode was produced and edited by Brianna Stegel. Lexi Banks is our marketing director, and I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb.